I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part eight in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae while under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar himself. This difficult and potentially embarrassing situation Paul finds himself in leads him to write that he is rejoicing. That sounds like it could be a hyper-optimistic, always glass-half-full approach to life. No matter the circumstances, go on rejoicing. But Paul has something much more profound and important for us in this part of his letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, Just as a disclaimer, we'll be talking about suffering tonight. Welcome to church, yeah, 113 degrees outside is fitting. We didn't plan it, it's just what the text has us uh, learning about tonight. And I think there is no better place to start talking about suffering than with Yoplait yogurt. Jesse, did you see that one coming? Yeah, I thought so. You just know me so well, huh? All right, fun fact about me and Yoplait yogurt is that we go way back. Uh, 15 years to be exact. Uh, I used to work at a local grocery store chain, and I once calculated that over the years working at this grocery store, uh, I put somewhere in the ballpark of 200,000 cups of Yoplait yogurt on a shelf. 200,000. Is somebody clapping about it? I don't, you don't need to give me applause for that. (laughs) Uh, Okay, day after day, uh, week after week, month after month, year after year, I broke open case after case holding 12 cups of flavored cow product. And then I placed cup after cup onto a cold shelf. Uh, The size of uh, the cup shrank incrementally from eight ounces to six ounces over time. Uh, Flavors came and went. um, And now, again, you may not know this about me. Why would you? But I'm not passionate about yogurt, um, especially Yoplait yogurt. Uh, If I eat yogurt, uh, which is not often, I eat like the Greek or the Australian versions of yogurt. Um, 200,000 cups of yogurt and I've probably eaten Yoplait yogurt at most a dozen times in my life. If Yoplait yogurt ceased to exist, I would probably not notice. 200,000 cups of this stuff. The seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days I spent filling Yoplait yogurt. Something that I do not care about, doing it because I was compensated with money for doing so. But I'm a person that thrives on work that involves what I consider meaningfulness. Um, It's less than satisfying uh, for me to work at a job that I do in order just to pay the bills, more or less. In fact, uh, less than satisfying is downplaying how it affects me. Uh, I find it... Uh, depressing, uh, painful, unmotivating, empty, soul-sucking, and so on. Um, I know this because that's what I experienced through my 11 years of putting Yoplait yogurt on a shelf. My Yoplait yogurt career started in the Portland suburb of Oregon City. It was and is a city that is transforming from a more rural community to a full-fledged commuter suburb of Portland. I grew up in Oregon City a mile from where this career doing yogurt started. 
I grew up on a street that used to be a five-minute walk from strawberry fields that eventually were turned into houses and apartment complexes. The street I grew up on was like a microcosm of the transformation and tensions happening in Oregon City at the time. We had uh, wealthy retirees with RVs parked in their yard living on our street and dentists and, and so on. We also had at least uh, three meth dealers who sold their goods to their customers, many of whom were neighbors. Poor and rich together living on this road in the same neighborhood. And on our street, uh, we were probably the second poorest family, uh, my mom and my two older sisters. Our house was falling apart inside and out. Even as a, a kid, I remember being embarrassed that we were more poor than the poor kids. Um, our grandma paid for us to attend a church-run school, and I'm pretty sure we were the poorest kids in, in school. Uh, again, just not a, not a fun experience. And it's interesting, as, as you get older, the things you realize that you didn't as a kid. Like, uh, my sisters and I were reminiscing a handful of years ago about our adolescence growing up in Oregon City, and my old nickname in the family was Hoover, uh, after the vacuum cleaner, because I would eat so much. And I would, it, it didn't hurt my feelings at all, if you can believe it. I ate a ton as I was growing up. And I'm kind of proud of it. Um, I was remembering my Taco Bell order, it was the, really the only restaurant we could afford to go to occasionally. My Taco Bell order as a kid was two seven layer burritos, a bean and cheese burrito, Mexi nuggets, and a cheese quesadilla. And I would eat the entire thing. There was never leftovers from it, right? So I earned that nickname and I'm proud of it. And I remember laughing about all of that, and my sister looked at me and said, you do know that we never had enough food. That's why you were always hungry, and why you would eat so much whenever you had the chance. Mom couldn't afford enough food for us. Huh. I mean, I knew we were so poor that our house was falling apart and our clothes were obviously cheap and usually secondhand. That, that was obvious. But I didn't realize that we were that poor. Jesus, why the numbing routine involving 200,000 cups of Yoplait yogurt? Jesus, why didn't I have enough food growing up? Go ahead and stand up as I read tonight's text as a gesture of respect for the scriptures. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. We have to remember uh, something about this letter that Paul has written. This is a letter from Paul who is under house arrest in the city of Rome, writing to a group of people in a different part of the Roman Empire, most of whom did not personally know him. Paul has something to say to this group in Colossae. 
to teach them and correct them, but before they'll hear him out, he needs to introduce himself. He needs to establish a rapport with these people through this letter. But as I said, he's currently on house arrest, awaiting trial before Caesar himself. Probably not the best situation to start from to demonstrate that you're a trustworthy person. And if his reputation has preceded him, this group in Colossae knows this isn't the first time he's been in trouble with the law. Now, uh, for Paul, this whole being in trouble with the law is less of a hurdle. In fact, he thinks it's a sign of something profound and good. Paul writes to the Colossians in verse 24, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Right off the bat, this kind of sounds weird and maybe for different reasons for different people. First, Paul says that he rejoices in suffering. That's probably not normal. Why rejoice? Uh, We'll we'll come back to that question a little bit later. Uh, Another weird thing Paul says is that something is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. That would make uh, some Christian circles really uncomfortable. It sounds almost like blasphemous and unexpected, almost like Paul is saying that the suffering of Jesus on the cross through his death was not enough. And to top it all off, it sounds like a humble brag to say that you're the one that's completing what Jesus apparently lacked. This confusion, while understandable, has more to do with the fact that we're not first century pressured and struggling Christians, and instead that we're 21st century rich, comfortable Western Christians. We absolutely love the Jesus that says that he came to give life and life to the fullest. We're into Jesus when he's healing people, speaking comfort and value to society's outcasts, casting out demons, feeding hungry people. Uh, We like him when he's outwitting the the political and religious elite of his day, really giving them some real zingers. Resurrection Jesus is a little strange, but he's great too. You know, victorious, conquering death, sitting at the right hand of God. I mean, he's very Instagrammable post-resurrection. We like it when he says things like this. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace, which is great. I mean, who doesn't want peace? Uh, But most of us don't really appreciate the rest of this verse, which goes, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Or when Jesus says stuff like, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Or when Jesus warns his followers that his kingship can be controversial and divisive even for the closest relationships, bringing relational tension and pain, Jesus says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Did you leave anyone out, Jesus? My point is that while Jesus does amazing things, works powerfully in the present time, here and now, Jesus is the king of the universe, he himself said it wasn't all going to be good. 
And I think a lot of people know that on one level. Yeah, yeah of course, uh, just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean everything in life is going to turn out awesome or even great. But then we don't get the job that we wanted and prayed for, or the house sale fall, falls through at the last minute, or health issues start dragging down our quality, quality of life, or the, the friendship or marriage hits a really rocky patch. You know, something goes wrong, and it creates a crisis of faith. Or we get angry at God and refuse to spend time focusing our attention on Him through prayer or the scriptures. We feel like we've been bamboozled. And social media is only too happy to remind us of all the happy Christians getting everything they could ever want. Look at their happy family, their big house, their really nice vacation. But me, Jesus is shortchanging me. He doesn't care about me like he cares about them. But didn't Jesus warn us that it would be really hard? And that by choosing to follow him, we were choosing hardship. Remember, he said, pick up your cross and follow me. But we didn't think he was serious, right? It was just a metaphor. Paul understands suffering differently than many of us modern, uh, rich on global standards, comfortable Western Christians. That either suffering is something unexpected and to be avoided at all costs, or that it's a byproduct of not having enough faith. But Paul sees Jesus, the king of the universe, setting up a pattern of life in the kingdom of God that's in a broken world. And an unavoidable part of living in the kingdom of God, here and now, is suffering. The world is broken. We are broken people, and this is not the way God wanted things to go. He had something very different, something much better in mind, life that involved thriving and flourishing and did not involve suffering and death. Since things are messed up in the world, we don't have some sort of escape hatch to avoid suffering. Wealthy nations and cultures definitely do their best to avoid suffering, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm very grateful for anesthesia when it comes to surgery. But oftentimes, to avoid one type of suffering, you empower a different kind of suffering. Or in the age of globalization, you push the experience of suffering onto others in faraway countries who are more poor than you are. You will suffer and I will suffer. That's inevitable for this life, and Jesus is very clear telling us to expect it to happen. Not just because you live in a broken world as a broken person, but because you follow Jesus in a broken world as a broken person. Jesus suffered and you follow him. Suffering is a pattern that Jesus laid down and that his followers pick up and continue on. And more than that, it's a pattern that shapes us as followers of Jesus. We tend to lump Christian suffering into the general category of persecution, which for us is almost exclusively something other Christians experience in other countries or in the American politicalized folk religion that often masquerades as Christianity in our country, persecution is any societal inconvenience to my faith, like wearing a mask or baking a cake for an occasion you disagree with. 
And I think N.T. Wright can help us understand the nature of this suffering that Paul is trying to get at. We would be wrong to think of suffering only in terms of the direct outward persecution that professing Christians sometimes undergo because of their faith. The church must, it is true, always be ready for such persecution and must support in prayer and practical help those who face it. But all Christians will suffer for their faith in one way or another, if not outwardly, then inwardly, through the long, slow battle with temptation or sickness, the agonizing anxieties of Christian responsibilities for a family or a church, the constant doubts, doubts and uncertainties which accompany the obedience of faith and the thousand natural shocks that the flesh is heir to, taken up as they are within the call to follow Christ. To follow Jesus is to come into conflict and tension with the world, with the world around us, even our church community at times, and ourselves. This is the reality of following Jesus, and it's something we will all have to go through, but more on that later. So hidden in verse 24 in the Koine Greek that Paul wrote in is this nuance that's really hard to capture in English. What, uh, what Paul seems to be saying about this suffering is that it, he is experiencing it himself in the ways that he has and is, and is currently experiencing it as he writes this letter in the ways that he is experiencing this suffering, he's actually taking some of the suffering off the plate of the Colossian church. If you will, he is drawing enemy fire off the Colossian church and onto himself. Rather than doing anything he can to avoid suffering, he sees it as part of his role in the life of the church and in the life of a church he has never met to suffer on their behalf so that they can have an opportunity to grow strong in Christ. The pattern of suffering that Jesus laid down did not imply that we would suffer in a vacuum, that we would go through any suffering alone. With other followers of Jesus, uh, we help one another through suffering as an expression of God's care and love for each person. We help each other through suffering easing the burden, even helping to bring it to an end if we can, all as an embodiment of God's kingdom in the here and now. As Paul writes about his suffering, don't misunderstand him. He's not looking to suffer. He's not figuring out ways to make people around him mad so that they will physically or psychologically hurt him. It's just that he believes God is asking him to do uh, what God is asking him to do will inevitably upset people around him. Paul writes in verse 25, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Paul has become a servant for the church. His role is to present to people and churches throughout the world God's plan for salvation, something of a secret plan that has just recently been revealed. Different cultures and religions and political ideologies have different ways of describing what's wrong with the world and what to do about it. But everyone seems to agree something is wrong with the world. The scriptures would agree, and they, and they are the revealing of what God is doing about what has gone terribly wrong. Like, 
The pulling back of a curtain, this mysterious salvation has been revealed to be Jesus of Nazareth, a suffering Messiah who's been resurrected. Followers of Jesus now get to understand exactly what God has been up to, exactly how he has wanted to set things right. Paul sees himself as the one who has been given the responsibility of sharing this message. And along with this message, he understands that it will bring him into conflict with the culture and the people around him. When this happens, he understands the suffering he is undergoing as a natural byproduct of what Jesus is asking him to do. And Paul sees his suffering as something that has purpose and meaning and, and, and even hope. He writes, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Paul is telling people about this newly revealed plan of salvation, they are front row witnesses to God's salvation going global. God's salvation does not run across ethnic or racial lines. Salvation is for everyone and every culture and every people group. And whether educated and rich or poor and illiterate, the king himself, Jesus, takes up residence in each of his followers. He is with you. The king is accessible, not stuffed away behind a royal court and a bureaucracy. He is with you right now. And that's great in and of itself, but Paul wants to point out that since the king is in you, when the king is revealed fully, you will benefit. When Jesus returns one day in the future and establishes what the scriptures call the new heavens and the new earth, you get to share in his glory. The things that you are ashamed of, that you would be mortified if everyone found out about you, the hurts, the pain, the trauma, the abuse, abandonment, broken homes, mental illness, all that sort of stuff is swallowed up. You are revealed not as a broken, humiliated human, but as a royal son and daughter of God himself as someone with dignity and worth. Jesus being with you right now is a guarantee that you will share in his glory. Paul puts into perspective that any suffering that he or they are experiencing in this life will be undone through Jesus. Paul's goal isn't to suffer, but he has and he probably understands that he will continue to suffer. He knows there is a coming glory that will overshadow any suffering that he may go through as he follows Jesus, which frees him up to focus on what God is asking him to do. Verse 28, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. This is the effect he wants his letter to have on the Colossian church. And I hope this is the effect that this letter will have on us here at Van City. Admonishing, which is like uh, correcting and helping someone undo foolish thinking, 
and then also teaching with, you know, all wisdom. Again, Paul has been hammering the value of intellect and teaching and knowledge. What you think about God matters. And I think the uh, 20th century Christian theologian A.W. Tozer put it rather well when he wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think Paul would agree and expends quite a bit of energy to teach people, including this Colossian church, and now we get to learn from this as well. But knowledge isn't actually the end goal. Paul doesn't want just a bunch of Christians who know a lot about God. He wants this knowledge to lead to a full maturity in Christ. Jesus as the shape and definition of what that maturity looks like. What's more, Paul thinks that this is possible for the Colossians, which means this is possible for you and I. We can have a full maturity, not to be confused with some sort of uh, moral perfection, but we can come to the place where Jesus has fully saturated our lives, our thinking, our desires, our decisions, our affections. Paul will detail in chapters three and four what this sort of full maturity looks like in a follower of Jesus. So if you want spoilers, you can jump ahead on your own time and read it. We'll get there as a church eventually. If we take the same pace we did with uh, Matthew, we'll probably be there in about two and a half years. So we'll be all right. As someone who helps lead a church and follows Jesus, um, what Paul has to say about this full maturity, um, you know, I, I really do believe in this at least a good amount of the time. And then there are times I really wonder how attainable this sort of full maturity actually is. But the parts of me that want to resist or dismiss what Paul has to say about becoming fully mature usually doesn't take into consideration what Paul says in verse 29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I understand the strenuously contend part. Paul's word choice paints a picture of an intense struggle, incredible effort, even weariness. Um, it's athletic language, I think like running a marathon. You know, it's hard, intense work. It's very tiring, so I hear. Paul is shepherding churches around the Roman Empire from the city of Rome and under house arrest. He has a looming trial before Caesar, and if that goes poorly, it will probably result in his execution. He is trying to care for churches through letters carried over vast distances by hopefully trustworthy Christian brothers and sisters. Strenuously contend sounds about right. But what spurs him on, what, what makes him possible to do all of this is the energy of Christ himself working in Paul. It's easy to discount that and, and to imagine what's possible based solely on your natural abilities and wirings and skills. But what about the power of Christ who has all power and authority? What's possible then? Well, consider this, Paul is writing this by the power of Jesus to a church halfway across the world 2,000 years ago, and here we are reading it today. 
So to recap what Paul has been saying, you guys doing all right? Good? Great. Okay. To recap what Paul has been saying, he's rejoicing as he suffers on behalf of the Colossians. This suffering is the pattern of life Jesus laid down for his followers. Paul is suffering because he's doing what God asked him to do, which is to tell people about this stunning salvation plan that God has unveiled. This plan and its resulting glory puts into perspective Paul's own suffering. And Paul is working hard and struggling to teach and admonish Christians so that they will experience full maturity in Christ. And he's doing all of this through the power of Jesus. Paul isn't just trying to build rapport with the Colossians so that they'll hear him out. He's teaching them, even now. Even in this section of the letter, he's teaching them. And we can learn from this as well. Paul is rejoicing in his suffering. For Paul, his suffering is a direct result of following Jesus. But remember, living as a Christian in a broken world with fragile bodies, carrying the emotional weight of life, living around other broken people, all of this will also produce suffering as a follower of Jesus. I think we can all agree that each experience of suffering isn't equal in terms of severity, even if it falls within the broad category of suffering. Spraining your ankle isn't the same as a compound fracture of your femur. And if you need to see, here's a picture of one. I'm joking. <laughs> I know the kids are in the room. <laughs> Yeah, spraining your ankle is not the same as a compound fracture of, your fr of, of a femur. Both point to the fragility of the human body and even to your own mortality. And both fall into the category of suffering, but I definitely prefer a sprained ankle over a compound fracture. And not all of suffering produces, you know, an existential faith crisis. You know, as I try to lift my one-and-a-half-year-old and, and four-year-old daughters into my arms at the same time, and I hurt my back, I don't rage against God and doubt his goodness. I think to myself, well, no more of that, at least until my back feels better, and then they ask really, really nicely, and then I'll do it, because the first time was probably just a fluke. It, it wasn't. I always hurt my back doing that. I should not be doing that. Something like, um, you know, a, a cancer diagnosis is awful. But as followers of Jesus, it can bring into tension his goodness or care for you. Or it can cause you to grapple with your mortality and God's promise of eternal life. Cancer causes not only physical suffering, but spiritual suffering as well. Pain and trauma from our past doesn't just sit at a safe distance as reminders of suffering. Often, pain and trauma linger, shaping and influencing us in the here and the now. Our past suffering causes present suffering, physical, emotional, and spiritual even. It can even warp our ability to feel safe with Jesus. Why didn't God protect you? Why does it still have to affect you? Why hasn't he taken it away? 
Even an unwanted season of life creates a sort of tension of what we desire and long for as followers of Jesus and what the reality actually is. You know, singleness, a rough marriage, parenting kids through difficulties, a trying job situation, whatever this season is, why isn't God helping you by changing it? Why doesn't he answer your prayers? Paul suffers and rejoices. Read carefully though, because he does, he does not rejoice because he's suffering. He rejoices because he suffers on behalf of the Colossians. He rejoices over the fact that there is a deeper meaning and purpose to his suffering. Now, don't misunderstand purpose and meaning in suffering as signifying that God is causing the cause of your suffering, that he wants you to suffer in the ways that you have suffered or are suffering that he planned it, that in some mysterious way, he made you suffer. He did it to you. That is absolutely not the place to draw your purpose and meaning from when you go through suffering. We know this because God, what God wanted for you and I was flourishing and thriving in a world that did not have death and suffering. We know this because God became a human and suffered and died so that we could be in a world with him where there would be no suffering or death. We know this because he is coming back to put an end to suffering and death. No, God is not the cause of your suffering. But we definitely do and will suffer. This is our world. God understands that reality, so Jesus soberly warns us that we will have troubles, that people will hate us, that we will suffer, and we can't always avoid it. Jesus then invites us to suffer as he did, as a way to subvert the power of suffering and death, as a way to draw good from bad, as a finger pointing forward to a day when suffering will be no more. So as we experience the spectrum of suffering throughout our lives, we look to see what Jesus is doing in the midst of it. We look like Paul for meaning and purpose. What good Jesus is drawing or wants to draw out of it. And those things are things that we can rejoice in while walking through suffering. Now, rejoicing does not deny grief, hardship, or deep loss. Remember, Paul describes his work as something that he strenuously contends at. It's hard. But Paul is choosing to look at his situation as he writes this letter from the perspective of what God is doing through and in his suffering. He's choosing to rejoice in the fact that God is subverting the very people causing his suffering as they try to stop him from proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And through the suffering they are causing him, Paul is able to declare Jesus as Lord all the more. 
I struggled working at a grocery store for 11 years. I feared that I'd be stuck there for decades as my only reliable option to provide for my family. But ultimately, Jesus taught me and then retaught me time and time again to see purpose and value in my work for him and his kingdom. He patiently and lovingly reminded me to look up from the cups of Yoplait yogurt to see my coworkers and customers all around me, to tell them about Jesus and his care and love for them. And when they didn't want to hear it, I did my best to allow Jesus to treat them through me with love and care as I acted as an ambassador for King Jesus. Some of the most significant and shaping moments in my apprenticeship to Jesus happened in a grocery store next to Yoplait yogurt. And I thank Jesus for that time. I walked my neighborhood street back in December uh, for the first time in probably a decade or more. Um, but this time, uh, I had my oldest daughter, Posey, with me. Uh, we walked the street I grew up on, and it's changed a lot, probably for the better. We walked through the neighborhood park. I grew up running around without any supervision as my mom worked her job to pay the bills as best she could. And the weight of my childhood poverty fell heavy on my mind and my soul. It hurt more than ever, which was not what I was expecting. I've sat in a therapist's office for years processing a lot of hard childhood stuff. Poverty seems like not that big of a deal until December, and then it was. A couple weeks later, I was telling all of this to my therapist, and we sat there discussing the pain of this poverty in my past and the pain it was causing me in the moment. And I asked him what this po poverty means for me, what it means for me now, and what I should do about it. And as is typical when I asked him, ask him really direct questions like that, he didn't really actually directly answer my question, but he did look at me and he did say, you know, Cameron, your poverty is part of the reason why you care about people, why you can sit with them and listen to people's pain and care about it. It's made you more sensitive to, the other, to other people's stories and their pain. I'm grateful for the way Jesus has used my past pain to shape me into the kind of person that is more willing to sit with other people's pain and, and hopefully to be a helpful presence to them as they go through their own pain. That hasn't just happened on its own. It's taken years of therapy, prayer, spiritual formation, and community around me to help me open myself up to the power of Christ, to his presence in past pain. And he's been faithful to shape me through it all. I think he wants to continue that work in me. And he, I, I think he wants to continue or begin that work in you. If you'll allow him. And in the kingdom that Jesus is king of, 
suffering can have meaning and purpose as Jesus draws good out of it. In his kingdom, suffering always ends with glory. In his kingdom, suffering can be used to mature us. And in his kingdom, we can experience his power at work as the inevitable suffering washes over us. Which means, in the kingdom of God, there can be rejoicing even when we suffer. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.